Hey everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. This podcast is on the ABCs of internet law. I'm going to divide this episode up into three parts simply because there is just a voluminous amount of information to share and I think it would be best if we do it in uh, small segments rather than in long segments. So stay tuned because I'm going to cover a lot of issues that affect um, internet and site privacy and websites and I'm going to try to delve into detail and give you some practical tips uh, whenever I can. So let's begin with um, some jurisdictional issues. Uh, What's covered here mostly affects US-based companies that are doing business online but if you are doing business Um, outside of the US, the US courts can still claim jurisdiction if you are, um, if you have customers that are in the United States. So if you are a non-US based business but you have customers that are in the US then this still impacts you. So that means that you have to be compliant with US laws and regulations. Let's begin with privacy policy, terms of service, and terms and conditions. Virtually all new websites have both the privacy policy page and the terms of service page. Most people, however, don't have the foggiest idea of what purpose these documents serve. To solve this, what they normally do is resort to a generic WordPress plugin or a template of these documents online and then they fill in the blanks. This isn't a good idea. The state of the art for today is to customize terms and conditions to uh, fit squarely with what you are doing uh, with how your company and website is carrying on its business. Um, So generic WordPress plugins are no longer sufficient to protect websites and companies from um, all sorts of claims that could arise later on. So let's begin with terms of service. These are also known as terms of use or terms and conditions. Um, They are a contract that you have with the people that use your website. Terms of service are crucial because they describe how any actions will be dealt with on the site in the event of a legal dispute. And I know that when people hear legal dispute, court, action, uh, things like that, they definitely get their back up. Unfortunately, today we are living in an age of intense litigation. And whenever you're starting out in the online world, you have to keep you have to keep that in the back of your mind I don't say this to scare you I say this to ensure that you take all efforts that are required to protect yourself and your business from legal claims that could arise later on now many are quick to criticize these terms of service or question why they are necessary but There are virtually a multitude of reasons that justify having terms of service on your site. For example, let's say you sell a course 
If you sell a course, you need terms to explain what will happen in the event a customer requests a refund. If you don't honor those terms, you can find yourself sitting at the defense table in a courtroom. Another example is copyright. If you allow people, say customers, other content creators, to upload something to your site, they still own the copyright. So it's important to keep that in mind. If you allow customers or other uh, users to your site to upload something to your site, they still own the copyright. And if you think about it, this is very practical. It's um, no different than if you post something on Facebook. Um, who would Facebook be to claim ownership of a piece of work, a drawing that you um, prepared yourself, or a um, blog that you wrote yourself? Who would they be to claim ownership of it if it is originally yours? So. Uh, these people still own the copyright. It's therefore important to have a statement in your terms of service that expressly state the following. And it can be, this is basically paraphrasing um, in legal jargon, but you can basically take this and tweak it to your, um, you know, to your own words. Quote, you as the user are giving me as the site owner permission to publish this material. Let's uh, chat a little bit about privacy policy. Privacy policy is required by most companies. It must include certain language and certain disclosures that will put visitors on notice of how their information is collected, how it's gathered, how it's secured, and how you as a site owner will use it and how and who you will share it with. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Different countries have different approaches to privacy. In the United States, they are pretty much laid back as compared to the EU and um, other countries. There's an opt-out policy that's required in the US. This allows companies to collect information on people without their prior consent, so long as the site owner gives them the right to opt out. Now, the most important part of privacy policy is that it matches what you're doing. If it doesn't, then you could risk catching the ire of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, these are things that they are especially on the lookout for. And penalties can be up to $40,000 per violation. The reason why the FTC likes these claims is because the press releases and the media attention that they generate send a powerful message to the general public not to do what the FTC just made an example out of you having done. So it maximizes the deterrent effect of would-be violators and at the same time it generates income because of the staggering penalty amounts that uh, can be generated. Now if you're thinking about using templates to solve this problem I would caution against that. Uh, the template may say something like, quote, this site doesn't allow browsers behavioral tracking. And then you look at the site and lo and behold it has Google Analytics on it, which in and of itself is behavioral tracking. So this is the problem with using these templates because in theory, it's all well and good because you know you think it's a plug-in and you think that if it's endorsed, by the uh, by WordPress that it will insulate you from 
any uh, legal claims. But in reality, if your business conduct is inconsistent with the template or with the WordPress plugin, then you are basically um, a target for a, uh, for a claim that's made by the FTC. Many policies also have a clause that says, quote, we won't sell, share, or rent your personal information. And again, while this is great in theory, it can prove to be an incredible obstacle when it comes to selling your business. And the reason why is because when you sell a business, you also sell the personal information as an asset of the business. What do I mean here? Well, what I'm referring to is the customer list. Um, in, in some cases, the customer list can be, can be even more valuable than the business or the site itself. If you think about it, these customer lists number in the thousands. If you're talking about big websites, it can number in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, one can imagine how uh, less likely and how lukewarm a potential buyer would be if they were unable to purchase the customer list along with the website. It would be as if they were starting from square one. Um, so again, the customer list can be just as valuable, if not more valuable, than the site itself. And so you don't want to have a clause that um, may have been a generic clause that you simply um, borrowed from a WordPress plugin that says we won't sell, share, or rent your personal information. And here is an awesome example from the former dating site True.com. After a lot of financial turmoil that they were uh, ensnared in, they attempted to sell their database to a competitor for around $700,000. However, the court slammed the door shut on the sale because True.com's privacy policy stated that they would not sell their information. So you can see here how the uh, clause that they inserted essentially, um, essentially sabotaged a $700,000 sale that they were close to inking with a competitor. Let's talk about <clears throat> using templates to create your terms of service and privacy policy. <clears throat> Again, you know, this is a theme that should be resonating to everybody by now. Using these templates is not a good idea. You always want to customize them to suit the needs of your business. And no differently here, when it comes to using templates to create your terms of service and privacy policy, it's not good practice. The web has evolved extensively over the past 20 to 30 years that today's websites have very specific functionality that must be custom tailored for the business and these documents. At the same time, the law uh, is beginning to catch up to reflect these advancements. What's interesting about the law is that the law is always slow to evolve with technology that um, is growing by leaps and bounds. I remember as a law school student having for a moot court question um, the, an issue that was uh, relevant to um, in vitro fertilization and the transfer of eggs 
Um, and it was a fascinating issue, and it was one that the law hadn't caught up to yet. And so um, the law that was being applied, in, you know, not only the statute, but the case law that was being applied was actually so far out of date that it was being stretched um, to the point where it was almost comical to try to apply the facts to the law that was on the books. And that was because the law that was being applied um, did not take into consideration in vitro fertilization, but instead uh, was related to the best interests of the child, which uh, served the purpose of, um, of taking care of children and ensuring their welfare if they were, um, if they were being uh, raised in an orphanage or if they were being, um, if they were a ward of the state, but it took zero consideration into in vitro fertilization and the transfer of eggs. So it was an issue that the law was very slow to catch up with. So it's a, you know, the same thing applies here in the internet uh, era. However, the laws are slowly beginning to catch up to reflect the advancements in technology on the web. This means that a one-size-fits-all terms of service can be unwieldy and can make a company vulnerable to lawsuits. Always remember that the terms of service is a contract that you have with your users. So that is as old as time, uh, contract law. We all know that there are um, a few elements that make up a contract. One is an offer, which is a manifestation of a willingness to enter into an agreement. There is acceptance, which is the um, assent to the offer, and there is consideration, which is quid pro quo, something that is exchanged um, between the two parties to make the uh, agreement enforceable. It can be money, it can be a legal detriment, it can be forbearance on the part of the party that is accepting um, from doing something that they otherwise had the ability to do. Uh, so for example, if I am uh, 22 years old and my uncle um, has made me an offer to give me $25,000 if I forbear from drinking uh, for the next five years, well that is completely, and I, and I agree to forbear from drinking for the next five years, that's an enforceable contract because but for the agreement with my uncle, I had the right to drink. Um, and now I am forbearing or, with, or refraining from drinking in order to um, provide the needed consideration for the agreement. If I was 20 years old, which is one year below the drinking age, and my uncle made the same offer, um, I had no ability to drink before 21 because I am a minor still. So the um, consideration would be lacking because I have no way of forbearing uh, from doing something that I'm legally obligated, that, that I have a legal right to do. So I don't want to get off on a tangent, but uh, remember that this all goes to the point that the terms of service is a contract with your users. If you use a boilerplate terms of service from a WordPress plugin, there's a good chance that you're not doing what's stated in these terms of service which can put you in breach of contract. There may also be clauses in your 
content that are boilerplate that read along the lines of the following. And here's a quick and dirty example. Quote, we have the right to change these terms of service whenever we want. If you continue using this site, you agree to these updates. Courts have invalidated clauses like this time and time again and automatically will invalidate all of your terms of service for including this one statement. Uh, this actually happened with a big company um, and you might have heard of this. Uh, it's Zappos. Uh, the court declared that the user agreement was not valid because what Zappos did was it buried it in a tiny link at the bottom of the page and Zappos made no effort to force the user to take any action like uh, checking off a box to agree. Now, if you've reached a point where your site is well-established and it's generating recurring revenue, uh, I definitely recommend contacting a lawyer who can draft custom terms based upon your individual needs. Again, I mean, if, if you remember, if you take only one thing from this podcast, it's that drafting custom terms based upon your individual needs and circumstances is critical in this um, new age of internet expansion and internet law. Now, and I say this for your own benefit because there are clauses that you can insert that will help you and insulate you from a potential lawsuit. I realize that when, you, when you're first getting started, there are so, there's so much risk inherent in starting a new business, let alone a, a website. And you want to keep costs at a minimum. You already have um, you know, costs piling on from internet service provider to the host to, um, a, to hiring a developer to, um, you know, uh, to uh, making sure that the, um, you know, the site is user-friendly and that um, it is a, um, you know, and that it has uh, all of the bells and whistles that are needed for a, um, you know, for a uh, well-to-do e-commerce site. But you don't want to overlook the possibility of potential lawsuit. And there are, for, there are websites that are successful and sometimes even surprise its owners, uh, despite how uh, low uh, the percentages of success, um, they still sometimes succeed. And the last thing you want to do is be kicking yourself three, four, five years later um, when you know that you could have inserted a clause um, that would have protected you um, at this juncture of the um, you know, at this juncture in time. So, for example, you can put in a clause that prevents users from assembling to form a class action lawsuit. Um, and a class action lawsuit basically bankrupts any small business. It also wreaks havoc on large businesses uh, such as <clears throat> AT&T and uh, Verizon. There was a recent class action lawsuit that had been filed against a a uh, big company, Wells Fargo, and um, you know, despite the fact that Wells Fargo uh, was is huge banking chain, they still got whammed with a uh, multi-billion-dollar uh, judgment, and um, there's no question that they felt it, um, even though they are a Goliath of a company. 
So you can only imagine in comparison what that means for a small business. A class action lawsuit is, is a death now for a small business. Um, so if you were to insert a clause that prevents users from assembling together to form a class action lawsuit, that would force individuals to sue individually, which would substantially reduce damages. Now, um, updating terms and conditions. In the same way that Apple forces you to sign up to new terms and conditions time and time again, you can do the same. The reason Apple does this is that they want to be in the best position possible in the event a lawsuit is brought by consumers. And they do this by staying current with the best practices and by adding new terms that increasingly strengthen their legal standing against these consumers. That's why um, you know, months, uh, you know, a month doesn't pass by where you don't see a new sign-up form that you that Apple is circulating to its users to um, you know for new terms and conditions. If you want to update your terms and conditions, you have to notify your customers or users. You can do this by sending out a broadcast email. You want to be able to show a court that you have that you have concrete evidence that you've sent out a notice updating your users on your terms and conditions. So again, this can be done with as little effort as simply sending out a broadcast email. And um, I've seen this firsthand with companies like Airbnb. In fact, I think just the other day I received an email from Airbnb advising me that they were updating their terms and conditions and they sent it in the form of a broadcast email. If you operate a site that requires users to log in, you can force users to check a box to accept the terms and conditions in order to continue using the site. The main thing here is that the user has to be given a choice between opting in or opting out. Or, I'm sorry, accepting the terms and conditions or not accepting the terms and conditions. However, it can be adhesive in the sense that it's an all or nothing proposition meaning that it can be no choice at all. So for example, um, you, can, you can flat out say to the users, if you don't accept these terms, you can no longer use the site. And they can't come back and say, uh, well, this was adhesive. Adhesive means that it was not a contract at all because it gave me no choice. It can be one-sided and decidedly one-sided. Um, and if you think about it, that's how these terms and conditions are presented in these broadcast emails. You either accept them or you don't. If you don't accept them, then you have no recourse whatsoever. Um, you no longer, you know, it, it's, if you decline using them, then you uh, stop using the platform. The only way to continue using the platform is by accepting hook, line, and sinker the terms and conditions as one-sided as they might be. One thing that comes to mind is, um, for example, in many cases when you're signing a, an agreement to purchase um, a consumer good, um, usually if you look on the back of the contract, it'll say that in the event of a legal dispute, um, customer agrees to, um, uh, to, uh, to arbitration in XYZ 
jurisdiction. Uh, this is what routinely happens. Um, and if you're uh, new to this idea of arbitration, well, arbitration is not as uh, plaintiff friendly as our local courts are. So um, in many cases, by signing a contract that acquiesces to arbitration, um, it's very one-sided because in most cases the arbitrator is going to find in favor of the company. And the arbitration clause usually is even more one-sided in the sense that it establishes the jurisdiction where the arbitration will take place. And most of the time the jurisdiction where the arbitration will take place is in the company's backyard or where it's been incorporated. Uh, for most companies that's uh, Delaware. So um, circling back to the terms and conditions, they can be one-sided um, to the extent that if the user decides not to accept the terms, then he or she uh, will have to will have to discontinue using the website altogether. The only way to continue using the website is by accepting the terms hook, line, and sinker. This can also help third parties rule in your favor when disputes arise. For example, with uh, the website Stripe, if you can prove that the user has agreed to your terms of service, then you can fight any issues that arise and prevail. Now. Forcing the user to check a box to agree to the terms of service acts like a signature on a contract and for that reason I strongly recommend it. Now if your user has not actively agreed to your terms of service, a judge is likely to rule that your terms of service are invalid because the user didn't agree to them. However, if you have a simple blog, there's no action that you can force the user to take. In that case, you're not protected, but at the same time, there's nothing that your users can uh, sue you for if you are you know, just uh, John Doe and you are blogging about um, food and about um, you know, uh, cooking up the next uh, best recipe for a chocolate cake. Giving bad information or advice. This is a very interesting topic. If you give bad financial or health advice, it can be a problem. However, what you can do here to protect yourself, since you're not always going to be 100% right in the advice that you, that you give, you can cover these with disclaimers uh, rather than in your terms. Uh, the reason for this is that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has issued guidance stating that you can't insert disclaimers in your terms. This is because uh, the FTC knows that nobody reads the terms, so the FTC requires the disclaimer to be placed right next to the product. Now while this sounds um, all well and good, in practice it becomes a problem. And that's because it's not practical um, to put the disclaimer right next to the product. Uh, on the uh, page, uh, it it might be that uh, you know that there are you know uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of products on a single page. So can you imagine what an eyesore putting all those disclaimers right next to each one of those products would be for the viewer? It wouldn't be aesthetically pleasing, 
and um, it would probably result in um, you know in a unpleasant viewing experience for the user. So as a result, <clears throat> most owners ensure that the disclaimers are in a visible place even though they're not directly next to the product. So this technically doesn't comply with FTC guidelines. However, the fact that the site owner has made the effort to put the disclaimer in a visible place um, gives them, uh, you know, gives them something to argue if the matter goes to court and they are called out on it. So you know, this whole body, this whole, this, these regulations are evolving as we go on and there's going to be litigation, there's going to be court cases that interpret these rules um, as we go on. So I can't point to a case right now that uh, tells you that you, um, that, you have, that you are on all fours if you at least um, ensure that your disclaimers are in a visible place. Uh, the law, the black and white law that the FTC has promulgated is that these disclaimers be placed adjacent or right next to the product. And so to the extent that they're not, you're technically out of compliance with FTC guidelines. At the same time, um, it would be, in my humble opinion, a difficult ro road to hoe for the FTC to bring a lawsuit against somebody who placed the disclaimer in a visible place, um, but just not next to the product. I could envision a, an attorney at trial uh, blowing up the page where the disclaimer is posted and, um, you know, and highlighting it for the jury and asking the jury, you know, what more could John Doe have done to make this disclaimer pop out um, you know, and be like a neon sign to the users of the site than, uh, than what he already did. So um, again, this is an evolving area of law, and um, as we go on, we'll have some cases that will interpret this uh, regulation or this guideline and provide more guidance on and provide and interpret how, um, you know, how it's, uh, it should be um, in practice, um, it, how it should be in practice used. Criticism and product reviews. Uh, product reviews is how many sites generate income. The good news is that criticism is allowed in product reviews, usually under free speech laws. Basically, criticism is a legitimate, the reason why um, criticism is allowed in, when it comes to um, uh, and the reason why it's a legitimate reason to use copyrighted material is um, because we do embrace this idea of First Amendment free speech and the ability to voice our opinions when it comes to um, commercial products. Just as much we are able to voice our opinions about political ideas. So we are in a commercial uh, area because we're talking, we're criticizing a product. However, the free speech laws still do extend to the commercial criticism of products. Criticism is a legitimate reason to use copyrighted material, so you are more than likely to prevail in the event of litigation. 
The problem, of course, is that whenever you talk about litigation, you talk about protracted litigation going on for months and months, if not years and years, all the while the attorney's meter is running just like the meter of a cab that's waiting for a uh, customer that's waiting in traffic, rather, uh, with, a, with a customer sitting in the back. And for this reason, and this reason alone, I recommend purchasing liability insurance. Liability insurance is basically like any other insurance. It's where you pay a regular fee, and the insurer will pay out in the event that your claim meets the terms of the policy. In the case of liability insurance, the insurer will pay your legal fees and any settlement that arises up to a certain limit. You can purchase liability insurance from uh, any one of a number of companies. Uh, a few that come to mind are Hudson Insurance Group and Hiscox, uh, their online insurance companies. As with all insurance, the cost depends upon your circumstances, but you can always get your company covered for as little as a couple of, a hun a couple of hundred dollars per month. And getting back, circling back to what we talked about before, while this investment might not be something that you're willing to undertake as a startup because of all the risk inherent in it, and um, you know the uh, the startup costs and the uh, likelihood of failure and all of that uh, stuff that goes into this consideration to even launch a new business, you cannot go wrong by doing it. So I realize that this is counterintuitive, and I realize that this might be the last thing on your mind. Uh, you're just thinking about survival and getting from day to day. At the same time, um, to the extent that the site is successful and does uh, generate a substantial amount of revenue, um, you know, in year three, four, or five, you don't want to be kicking yourself for not having purchased the liability insurance at an earlier stage if you're now confronted with a lawsuit. So again, I highly recommend investing in it even before you incorporate. Um, again, this is uh, due to the legal fees that can be staggering and that can really um, bankrupt a business and take them down to their knees. So you don't want uh, something like that to happen. And uh, that's why um, you know having that's why this is a safe investment and it's a smart business move. Earnings disclaimers: Amazon has uh, one, and um, virtually all of the e-commerce websites have them. It's a specific statement that must be clearly displayed on the affiliate sites. Uh, clearly displayed is a gray area. So why do we need them? Uh, to understand why, let's take a trip back in time to explore the origins of affiliate marketing. Affiliate marketing, as a preliminary matter, was never intended to be classified as a partnership, even though it passes the duck test for a partnership. When I refer to the duck test, I'm referring to the fact that it, you know, if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. Um, so. In the case of a partnership, you know, if it looks like a partnership, walks like a partnership, and talks like a partnership, then it passes the partnership duck test. And so, even though it was uh, affiliate marketing was never intended to be classified as a partnership, and it's not 
a per se partnership, um, it really looks like one. And that can present a problem because even if the, if, even if the drafters of the affiliate program state in no uncertain terms in the agreement that this is not a partnership, courts will look to the intent of the agreement and will look beyond the four corners. And so to the extent that the agreement looks like a partnership, even if the drafters went to great lengths to state unequivocally that it wasn't, it can still be declared a partnership in a court of law. Uh, this is an issue that is a recurring issue that comes up when it comes to worker classification in tax law. Uh, that is an area that I'm, uh, I practice as well. In tax law, um, and when it comes to small businesses, worker classification is very important. The classification is generally between independent contractors and employees. When it comes to employees, employers have to pay all sorts of self-employment tax to the state and federal government, and that includes FICA, that includes taxes that the business would uh, rather not have to pay um, if they are just getting started. They would rather have their workers classified as independent contractors because it results in substantially more savings. Um, and the problem, however, though, is that the way a lot of small businesses draft their agreements, it's, uh, they draft it in such a way that the worker looks more like an employee, a W-2 employee, than he or she does an independent contractor. So while the small business might state unequivocally in the employment contract that the worker is an independent contractor, if there are other factors in the contract that prevent the worker from uh, working for another company, that require the worker to uh, do his or her work on site, if there are um, training manuals that the small business has and that the worker is required to follow to a T, these are all factors that militate in favor of employee classification and not independent contractor classification. So this is, how, this is a prime example of how courts will look beyond the four corners of the agreement and interpret it according to its nuances rather than accept any statement, um, uh, rather than accept any statement on its face that it's a, an independent contractor agreement or that it is uh, not a partnership. So circling back to this partnership, um, this affiliate marketing, um, again, was never intended to be classified as a partnership. This was important for legal reasons because it allowed large corporations to absolve themselves of responsibility for the actions of their affiliates. Over the past decade or so, courts have begun to hold the partner programs liable for the actions and deeds of the affiliate under um, a very um, uh, specific theory of the law, uh, which is a theory um, in contracts law that we're not going to get into. This is why affiliate terms are becoming more and more complex. Companies are trying to draft their terms in a way that reduces their liability. 
An example here is that Amazon requires you to use the exact language of their disclaimer and display it clearly on your site if you're an affiliate. What does display clearly mean? The problem of, is that no one knows what display clearly actually means. It's a gray area. It's kind of like the justice in that um, seminal um, constitutional law case involving um, pornography um, where he stated in his, um, I believe in his opinion, that he wasn't able to define it, but he knew it when he saw it. Um, so in the same way, display it clearly is very vague and very gray um, and really hasn't been defined with the specificity that's needed for owners of websites to follow it to a T. The FTC, of course, recommends placing the disclaimer directly next to the link, but a company like Amazon doesn't require this. A lot of websites insert this disclaimer in the footer, and that's kind of become uh, what the state of art is these days, um, inserting the disclaimer in the footer. Some create a page especially for it. What it comes down to is that Amazon and other uh, similarly uh, situated e-commerce companies with an army of affiliates, they want to cloak themselves in the veil of immunity in case a rogue affiliate is uh, targeted by the FTC and the FTC decides to pursue Amazon next um, as uh, most um, litigants to tort actions um, ha um, learn through the process and as uh, attorneys are taught uh, they're always taught to go after um, all of the parties that have potential liability including the deep pockets so when it comes down to a lawsuit where with an Amazon affiliate and let's say the affiliate is Joe's uh, website well, Joe's website isn't going to have as deep pockets as Amazon.com does. So the lawyer is going to try to uh, draw Amazon.com into the lawsuit under a theory of joint liability. And oftentimes um, they will sue Amazon um, just as much as they will sue the little guy, in this case uh, Fred's uh, website garage or whomever that is. Amazon, in turn, wants to be able to uh, get the case dismissed on a summary judgment uh, without having to expend a great deal of time and money. And to do that, they want to be able to argue that it was in their terms and conditions, but the affiliate strayed from the terms and made no effort to comply with them. So essentially, Amazon wants to give FTC the FTC the impression that they are as pure as a driven snow, They've done everything that they, um, that they possibly could have done to prevent this rogue affiliate from, uh, you know, from, uh, from doing what they did. In reality, with hundreds of thousands of affiliates, there's simply no way that Amazon can police them all. The FTC, at the end of the day, wants full disclosure next to each link. So even if there are 20 affiliate links on one page, they are looking for a disclosure uh, next to each one. And as you can imagine, this is unrealistic. I mean, it's just 
A, I mean, it's an absolute eyesore to think of how something like that would look like and how unesthetically pleasing it would be to the eye. So my advice is to try and be as transparent as possible. And if you want to be in full compliance with the FTC, then do exactly what they are uh, requiring. And that is make full disclosure next to each link. And that puts you in the best position possible um, to uh, give you an ironclad guarantee that you're in compliance with FTC guidelines or dot-com disclosure requirements. Anything less than that um, puts you on uh, shaky ground. So what is the FTC looking for? Uh, at the end of the day, they're looking for deceptive marketing. Uh, so for example, if a review is a review of 50 blenders and all, five, all 50 blenders have five-star reviews with an affiliate link, this is clearly false and misleading. However, in most cases, the lines are more blurred. And to combat this, the FTC came up with the bright idea of placing these disclosures next to affiliate links. Um, and again, this is something that is, um, you know, sounds all well and good in theory, but in practice just fails miserably. What would happen in court? Well, if the case ever went to trial, most attorneys defending the suit would blow up the page. Let's say that there's a page dedicated to disclaimers. They'd blow that page up on a large poster board and sit it right in front of the jury. Uh, next, the attorney would highlight the disclaimer that says there are affiliate links on this page and urge the jury to use their common sense and argue what more should uh, or what more could Joe have done to um, emblazon this disclaimer um, in front of his users so that it looked like a, um, a glowing neon sign. What should you do in practice? In the real world, you want to have your I's dotted and your T's crossed on your privacy policy, terms of service, and affiliate disclosures so that the FTC has no ammunition and no way of uh, calling you out. When determining the placement of the disclaimer, basically think about how other people might perceive what you're doing. Um, perception is huge here. <clears throat> a lot of pol politicians always, a lot of politicians, and it doesn't always seem this way, uh, but they usually, when they're balancing um, the risk of, uh, of doing something uh, versus not doing something, they always um, calculate what the perception of their action is. And I realize that it might not seem like that today because of all the corruption that we have in politics, but they do make calculated um, estimates of what they feel the, or how they feel the public is going to perceive something. And so while something might be totally <coughs> legal, and uh, totally on the up and up, it might give the appearance of impropriety or it might give the appearance of something nefarious going on. And as a result, they might uh, decide to do a, um, you know, to do a complete end run around it and not even do it. Um, and, though, and, and that might be a smart decision. And they pull 
uh, people all the time uh, to determine what the likely effect on the public um, is. And so again, the perception, you always, want to, you always want to consider what appearance it's giving to the public and you never want to give the public the perception that you're playing fast and loose with the disclaimer. You want to always appear honest, transparent, and that you're doing as much as possible to comply with regulations. So we're going to stop here and we'll begin the second episode of the ABCs of Internet Law with the topic Collecting Emails.